2: Issues affecting the Latin community and much more. Then every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novela, which is a fancy way of saying a podcast. podcast. Welcome
2: to Locatora Radio, season nine. Love, Love at, first at first listen. listen.
1: This season,
2: we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you
3: get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome
4: to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Today's topic is often called the greatest female painter of the Baroque period. But that's kind of one of those things that makes me chuckle because there weren't very many women painters to speak of during that time. Though there were a couple of others in addition to today's topic. Uh, But today's subject was quite extraordinary. We've had a couple of requests for this one, but the most recent one came from mother and daughter Shelly and Annie. And also, um, interestingly enough, right before we came into the studio today, I got another one from another listener named Sophie, I believe. I'm going from memory, so apologies if that is wrong. Uh, so we are talking about uh, Artemisia Gentileschi. And I have to issue a trigger warning uh, because this episode does talk about sexual assault. And it's not something we can kind of skip through really quickly because it's part of an event in the artist's life that was quite significant. Uh, so if that is a topic that you would rather not hear or share with l- younger listeners, be advised this may not be the episode for you. We're also gonna do something a little bit different here, and before we actually get into Artemisia's story, we're going to talk about her father, uh, Orazio Gentileschi because he was a vital part of his daughter becoming a painter. He is an important figure in art history in his own right. And because the pair did collaborate, uh, I, we just wanted to give you a little bit of context on him, because he is referenced a good bit. And he's, uh, as we said, pretty important. So we're going to start with Orazio's story.
0: Orazio was born Orazio Lomi in 1562 in Pisa, Italy.
4: And when he was still a, a young man so not a child anymore, uh, Lomi moved to Rome. And the timing of this move is uncertain, but most uh, historians will date it somewhere around the late 1570s or early 1580s. He would have been roughly 20 at this time. As a, a caveat sort of going forward with this episode, almost any date that we mention, without with a few exceptions, are going to be approximated. Uh, and we'll talk about that some a little bit later, but... Anytime you look up the work of uh, Orazio or Artemisia, when you see their works painted, they're always circa these years or these years. So just know, we'll use some specific years, but it's really kind of a, mm, it was around this time. Uh, so Orazio, like we said, would have been about 20 when he moved to Rome in the 1570s or early 1580s. And this is also roughly the time when he started painting.
0: Early on in his time in Rome, Orazio worked on church frescoes in collaboration with Agostino Tassi.
4: Tassi was a really well-known landscape painter, and together the pair decorated the walls of the Santa Maria Maggiore, San Giovanni Laterano, and Santa Nicola.
0: We're not quite sure exactly when Orazio Lomi changed his name to Gentileschi, but he did. And in the early 17th century, he became heavily influenced by Caravaggio. And, of course, Caravaggio is known for his use of contrast. He offset light areas by deepening the shadows around them. And this is known as tenebrism. And this created incredibly dramatic paintings.
4: Yeah, there are many other things that Caravaggio is known for, but that's kind of one of the things that when you're doing a quick art history course, they'll mention his use of light and dark in contrast to create great drama. Uh, And right around 1600, when Orazio was 37 and his daughter at this time would have been about seven, Caravaggio completed two paintings that would create this significant shift in the art world and give rise eventually to what was called the Baroque style. The Calling of St. Matthew and The Martyrdom of St. Matthew, which are two paintings that he did. Uh, roughly at the same time, introduced this signature signature style of light and shadow that were juxtaposed for both dynamic tension and also a, a high level of realism.
0: Orazio Gentileschi was mesmerized by Caravaggio, and the two of them became friends and drinking buddies for a while. Their camaraderie didn't really last, though. Both of the men had reputations for being really hot-headed, but Orazio's work from this period shows... Uh, Caravaggio's sway in his style. Orazio's paintings, David and Goliath, Saint Cecilia and an Angel, and his 1609 piece, Madonna and Child, really bear a clear mark of his admiration for Caravaggio.
4: And of course, Orazio's style did continue to evolve. And while that Caravaggio influence remained in his work, uh, the paintings that Gentileschi produced uh, going forward started to favor this sort of lighter color palette And it also reintegrated the Mannerist style that he had studied when he was younger. In 1623,
0: he painted what's considered to be his masterpiece. It was called The Annunciation. This painting features the Virgin Mary and the angel Gabriel. And there's still a level of drama and immediacy about the composition, but it's less visually heavy than the two that we mentioned a moment ago.
4: And just a few years after he painted The Annunciation, uh, Orazio was invited to England by King Charles I to become court painter. To finish out
0: his artistic career, Orazio worked along- alongside his daughter, Artemisia, on a huge project in the Queen's House in Greenwich. Throughout 1638, the father-daughter team painted the ceiling panels there.
4: Yeah, and we'll talk about those a little bit more later. Uh and that's just, like I said, a quick mini biography of Orazio. And before we get into Artemisia's specific story, uh, do you want to have a word from a sponsor? Yes, I do.
0: And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
5: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For.
4: So Orazio's daughter, Artemisia Gentileschi, was born in Rome, Italy, on July 8th of 1593 to, of course, her father, Orazio, and her mother, Prudencia Montoni.
0: When Artemisia was 12, which was in 1605, her mother died in childbirth. And at that point, it seemed likely that she was probably going to to be sent to a convent to become a nun. But over the next several years, Orazio became aware that his daughter had artistic leanings and he started to teach her how to paint.
4: Yeah, he also had sons, uh, and he was kind of teaching all of his children, but Artemisia was really the one that stood out as having a real talent for this. And she produced her earliest signed work in 1610 at the age of 17, and that's called Susanna and the Elders. And this painting depicts the biblical story of Susanna, who rejected two men and is then accused by them of adultery in retribution for her uh, unwillingness to be with them. And in Gentileschi's version, the two men are very conspiratorial. One is whispering in the ear of the other. And while Susanna, uh, who is unclothed, holds up her hands as if to shield herself from their words. The
0: next year, and back to the warning that we had at the top of the podcast, would turn into a really harrowing one. On May 6th of 1611, Artemisia was raped by her father's colleague, uh, Agostino Tassi. This is the same landscape painter that her father worked on church frescoes with.
4: For historical context, uh, at the time, rape was not really viewed quite the same way we do today. It was not so much considered an affront to the female victim or a brutalization of her. It was looked at a little bit more as an insult to her family. So uh, the retribution that Horatio demanded was that Tassi must marry his daughter. This is actually not uncommon in sort of uh the kind of sexual interactions of the day that a man would take a woman by force and eventually end up married to her as part of an agreement with the family. And initially, uh, Agostino Tassi agreed to this. He was actually already already married. There's some question marks around that. Uh, and he apparently used this promise that he was going to marry Artemisia as leverage to continue his sexual relationship with her. But eventually, he backed out of the deal and said he was not going to marry her after all.
0: Tassi's reversal on the matter sent Orazio into a fury. He sought legal action against his associate. And this resulted in the episode of Artemisia's life that often eclipsed her work. It was a trial that dragged on for nearly eight months. And the transcript of this trial still exists. And it's more than 300 pages long.
4: Uh. And I, I will confess, I did not read it because it is in Italian, but I read various excerpts in translation, just FYI. Uh, and even though we mentioned it at the top of the episode and Tracy mentioned it again just a moment ago, I really feel like I should issue a quick warning before we get into sort of talking about the testimony, because it's, it's very upsetting, not just for the actual event that happened, but how the victim was treated in the process of all of this.
0: So Artemisia had to testify repeatedly during these proceedings. And in her account, she said that Tassi stormed into her father's studio while she was painting. And because her father was a working painter with a studio at his home, people did come and go all the time.
4: And according to her testimony, she said that Tassi came in yelling, not so much painting, repeatedly. And then he took her tools from her and threw them on the floor and then proceeded to attack her. She fought back, but she was overpowered. She actually turned a knife on him after it was over.
0: It wasn't enough that she gave this testimony. The veracity of her statement had to be tested. It was tested by torture using thumbscrews to see if she would change her story under duress. But she remained steadfast in her account and eventually referred to the torture device when yelling at her attacker, this is the ring you gave me, and these are your promises.
4: It's very hard for me to think about that. Uh, Especially because Agostino Tassi faced no such torture when it came to his testimony, even though he had at best a checkered history and he gave obviously contradictory testimony. Uh, records indicate that the judge would even stop him periodically and go, wait, that's completely different than what you said before. Uh, he had been imprisoned prior to this for incest, and he had told multiple witnesses that he had been sleeping with Artemisia, but then during the trial, even though those witnesses had had testified to those conversations, he said that he had never had a sexual relationship with her and that he would only visit the house to protect her virginity from other would-be rapists. So the story kept changing. And he also claimed that she had slept with her father and that her mother and her aunt, who were women that he did not know, were in fact whores. And he insinuated that prostitution was something of a family tradition and even at one point suggested that her father had sold her to other men. In short, he was utterly vile and just said horrible things. And he did not have to face this horrible torture that she did.
0: He didn't even have to really face his sentence. He was found guilty and exiled from Rome for five years. But it appears that his exile was not
4: enforced. Uh, And a a note on the timeline. We're going to jump back a little bit and talk about that painting that we mentioned earlier. So because the dates of Artemisia's paintings are generally all approximated, some people place her painting of Susanna and the elders uh, in different positions suggesting slightly different interpretations of the work. So scholars that place it as being painted just prior to the rape suggest that she may have been expressing a scenario in which she had been fending off the advances of her father's friends for a while already. And we do know some of that was going on. There was another man in addition to Agostino Tassi named Cosimo Corley who had been pretty sexually aggressive with her and had perhaps even attempted to rape her as well. Uh, So the idea of the two men in the painting being Corley and Tassi is certainly one possibility and is a popular interpretation. Alternately, when scholars place the painting of Susanna concurrently on the timeline with the trial or just prior, but after the rape, it's perceived more as a, a statement about her defense of her virtue having been taken from her and her being innocent in all of it.
0: After the Tassi ordeal, Artemisia did marry, and she married another painter. And this was a match that was arranged by her father. Her husband, Pierantonio Antonio di Vincenzo uh, Stiattesi, was also a painter. And the couple left Rome and headed to Florence. Orazio had already written to the Grand Duchess of Tuscany on his daughter's behalf, asking for a patronage.
4: The patronage was granted, and Artemisia and her husband stayed in Florence for almost a decade. And while she was there, she was producing works for the Grand Duke of Tuscany, Cosimo de Medici, and she became really ingrained in the art world there, and she made a lot of friends. She even became uh, friends with famed astronomer Galileo. One of the paintings that Artemisia worked on during her time in Florence was Judith slaying Holofernes. And as with Susanna and the elders, it focuses on a female character. And in this case, that's Judith. And she's killing the Assyrian military leader, Holofernes, to save the Jewish people of Bethulia. And this painting is quite graphic.
0: Her painting shows Judith cutting the general's throat with the assistance of a handmaiden. And in a follow-up painting entitled Judith and Her Maidservant, the two women are depicted after the general's defeat carrying the head of Holofernes in a basket.
4: A popular theory about these paintings, particularly the first, is that this was part of how Gentileschi was working through her experience of having been sexually assaulted and then having to go through the horror of that long trial, and that depicting a woman enacting such brutal violence on a male figure was something of a revenge statement when the painting was unveiled. This, of course, is all speculative, though. It's all art interpretation.
0: And also as a counterpoint, there are scholars who are quick to point out that there's was definitely a taste for violence and gore amongst art patrons at the time. So she may well have just been making lucrative decisions about her work subjects. There's a 2002 interview with Smithsonian in which Judith Mann, who's a curator of early European art at the St. Louis Art Museum at the time, and she mentioned that while a lot is made of Artemisia's work being vengeful in nature... Fewer than a quarter of the painter's works feature women in that
4: vein. And before we get to uh, what happens to Artemisia after she leaves Florence, do you want to have another quick word from a sponsor? Let's
0: do. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
5: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half.
6: We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
4: You want to start talking about history again? Mm -hmm. So back to Artemisia. Around 1620, she was ready to leave Florence. Uh, she and her husband had had four children together, but three of them did not uh, make it past childhood. They died. And moreover, her marriage was not a particularly happy one. Uh, Pierre Antonio had a problem with spending money more quickly than they were taking it in. And he's alleged to have cheated on her repeatedly and just sort of that they had a contentious and unhappy union. So perhaps hoping for a, a fresh
0: start. Artemisia, Parentonio and their surviving child, who was named Prudentia, moved to Rome. And as had been the case in Florence, the painter made friends within the art community, and this put a strain on her already crumbling marriage. Parentonio actually slashed the face of one of Artemisia's male acquaintances, and not long after that, he left the marriage for good, leaving behind his daughter as well.
4: So, uh roughly 10 to 12 years after she had painted the image of Judith and her main maidservant, carrying the severed head of Holofernes, uh, Artemisia revisited that same subject of Judith again in her work. And this was somewhere around 1623 or 1625. So it was during her time in Rome. And the painting that she created at this point was Judith and her maidservant with the head of Holofernes.
0: This time it's still a depiction of two women and again after the beheading and it's in a way that creates tension and urgency. The scene is lit by candlelight and that candlelight itself is part of the composition. The light and shadows she creates around that light source are just incredible. Even the gossamer fabric that's draped over one of Judith's shoulders is affected by the light of the flame in a way that makes the candle almost seem like it must be flickering. There's also a a less... This is also a less brutal representation of the story than the earlier works. There's a lot less gore.
4: Yeah, it feels a little bit more like it is uh, less about the murder and more about the two women, if that makes sense. Uh, We'll be pinning all of these on Pinterest and then our listeners can go and kind of get a sense of what we're talking about and decide for themselves how they feel like it looks. Um, And while she was not uh, the toast of Rome the way that she had been in Florence... And this was largely due to shifting tastes among art patrons. Uh, Gentileschi did receive a commission from King Philip IV of Spain in 1627. And this particular project provided her enough money that she could stay afloat and also support her daughter. In
0: 1630, the bubonic plague took a huge toll on Venice. It killed a third of the people there. And to escape the sickness, Gentileschi moved to Naples.
3: Yeah, uh,
4: other than a a brief foray elsewhere, which we're about to talk about, Naples really became her home for the rest of her life. Uh, Around 1638 or 1639, depending on when you look, but most favor 1638, she went to London to work with her father on the Queen's house uh, for Queen Henrietta Maria. And she had resisted several requests to go to London prior to this, in part uh, because she did not want to work for the Anglican king, although Queen Henrietta Maria was Roman Catholic. uh, But frankly, her work had really dried up in Italy. She was having trouble making ends meet, so she finally acquiesced on this trip to London. During
0: the work on the house at Greenwich, Orazio died, and that was in February of 1639. Artemisia stayed in London for a couple of more years, but as soon as she had work back in Italy, she went back to Naples.
4: Yeah, and she continued to work for the rest of her life, uh, but she died in Naples around 1652. She would have been approximately 59 at that time. And while she had been painting, uh, really most art scholars kind of regard her earlier works as her best work.
0: So for a long time, Artemisia's works were actually attributed to other artists. And this was in part due to the fact that her father had been her primary teacher, as well as the fact that she was a woman.
4: And there are even sort of ongoing debates about this. Um, We mentioned earlier that Susanna and the Elders was her first signed painting, and that was in about 1610. But there is another piece called Madonna and Child from 1609 that is sometimes credited to Artemisia and sometimes to her father. We mentioned it earlier as one of her father's pieces. But that continues to be some debate about it. Even though Susanna and the Elders has her signature on
0: it, It was long believed to be her father's work, because a lot of people found it really difficult to believe that a young woman of 17 could paint with that much maturity.
4: And also because she was a woman, that rape that had so affected her life, we mentioned earlier, sometimes really overshadowed her abilities in her work. And having been part of a rape trial basically cast doubt on her sexuality and her honor for her entire life, even though the aggressor had been found guilty, it still just kind of put a stain on her reputation. And even prior to that assault, her reputation was constantly questioned because of the open nature of her father's studio and the men and women who often visited as both colleagues and models. Just the idea that she was exposed to so many people coming and going led to some some uh, rumors about her. So while her talent was really obvious, people really wanted to talk about the possible scandals attached to her her amazing skill and the amazing work she was doing.
0: For her own part, she readily recognized and openly discussed her struggles working in a field that was dominated by men. In a letter to a patron later in her life, she described the tiresome nature of trying to defend her work as her own and the fight to get a fair price for it. She wrote, You feel sorry for me because a woman's name raises doubts until her work is seen. If I were a man, I can't imagine it would have turned out this way.
4: But it's also important to note that um, there was also a lot of acclaim for her in her lifetime. And in fact, some scholars uh, have suggested that because of the huge scandal when she was 17, it actually kind of opened the door for her to be able to paint some of her uh, more sort of gory and graphic pieces, uh, that it was more accepted for her at that point to be able to do those things. But again, an issue of debate. Uh, in 1635, though, she wrote this note to her friend Galileo, quote, I have seen myself honored by all the kings and rulers of Europe to whom I have sent my works, not only with great gifts, but also with most favored letters, which I keep with me.
0: Those ceiling panels that she and her father worked on together in London were removed from the Queen's house, and now they're in Marlborough House in London.
4: And in 2002, so it's more than a decade ago, but
2: uh, quite
4: Neat. Uh, the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art hosted an exhibit entitled Orazio and Artemisio Gentileschi, Father and Daughter Painters in Baroque Italy, and the works of both of the artists were featured together. Uh, which is kind of a lovely way to, to sum up their, um, their lives and how they affected one another. Uh, yeah. and we'll link to, uh, we have one of the catalogs from that exhibition was one of my um sources. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And it's worth a look because it's it's very interesting to see sort of the lineage and development of style. You can see like the Caravaggio style and a lot in her father's work and then it evolves in his work and then her work kind of evolves it some more. It's it's pretty interesting to look at if you're into art history.
0: Do you also have listener mail? I do, of course, have listener
4: mail. I actually have a few, uh, and uh, they are about our narcolepsy episodes. And I, we've read one uh, listener mail about narcolepsy in a previous episode, but we've gotten so many, and people have been really so kind to share their experiences with us that, I want to try to give voice to as many of them as I can. Uh, one of the things that I really appreciate is that, uh, I mentioned at the end of the second episode, I think that I have known a couple of people with narcolepsy in my life, but neither of them had cataplexy. So hearing people describe what that is like is a whole other universe of information. Um, uh, I won't read the whole letter, but, uh, our listener Ashley wrote us, And she was appreciative of it. And she mentions that she has narcolepsy and cataplexy. And her description of it, I think is lovely. She says the latter, I always describe as a doll losing its ball joints temporarily. I lose the ability to speak clearly, often sounding drunk. My knees buckle and my neck does as well. It obviously never lasts long, but it is quite embarrassing. Um, I hate that she has to be embarrassed by it, but I understand. Uh, but it's a, that's a really good way to put it. I think for people that maybe have never seen it or certainly don't have it, that's a, it's an indicator of how like your body just kind of crumples on you and you, you really don't have any, uh, way to deal with it. Our next email is from our listener, Catherine, and she, uh, makes a little plea that I think is a good one. So she mentions the day before part one of the history of narcolepsy was released, I was in attendance at the New York narcoleptics meetup group at which I'm pretty sure I posed the question. When did people start having a word for narcolepsy? Lo and behold, the very next day, stuff you missed in history class delivered. I'm glad for that accidental timing. Uh, Catherine says she's had narcolepsy since her preteens and she was diagnosed as a junior in high school. She's now 32, so she spent the vast majority of her memorable life with the condition. And she... Uh, is giving us a couple of paragraphs about her personal history. She says, as a teenager, I fell asleep in class every day, but I didn't have cataplexy or any other symptoms, which might have indicated that something was wrong other than me being a lazy student. I was deeply frustrated and embarrassed by what I thought was my lack of willpower to stay awake, but never considered that my inability to be alert might be linked to a sleep disorder. I was lucky in that my mother, who has sleep troubles of her own, described my symptoms to her sleep doctor, who suggested I come in for testing. In retrospect, I can easily say that getting diagnosed with narcolepsy was one of the best things that has ever happened to me because it resulted in my gaining access to drugs which substantially reduced my symptoms. I often look back and wonder what would have happened to me if I had never been diagnosed and received treatment for my narcolepsy. I think I would have struggled a great deal in college and I would have found it nearly impossible to hold down a regular job. I think I would have grown increasingly angry and unhappy as I grew older without developing the ability to function as a quote-unquote responsible adult. The ability to control the behavior of one's own body is elemental to personal safety, to social and professional acceptance, and perhaps most importantly, to one's sense of self-respect. The imaginary version of me who never found out about her condition is someone who would be suffering today on all of those fronts. It may be too late to influence your plans for recording episode two. It was. We already had it recorded. Uh, But if it isn't, she says, I beg you to incorporate something along the lines of this brief PSA. A lot of people have narcolepsy and don't know it. If you have symptoms, it is worth it to get yourself tested. That, I think, is a really good message that, um, you know, we hadn't thought about. It's kind of inherent. We would hope that once people are aware of a possible thing, they may be able to interpret something that's going on. But uh, that is a really good point, I think. And uh, uh, several of the people that wrote us mentioned that they had those feelings of, like, being angry and frustrated and feeling like they... We're trying so hard to do things and they couldn't before they were diagnosed. So uh, I imagine there are a lot of people undiagnosed that are going through those really negative emotions that don't really have to. Uh, So if you think you might follow Catherine's advice, get somebody, get a professional to investigate the situation. Uh, And again, thank you to everybody who has been sharing their their emails and their stories with us. It's really incredible. Uh, And I'm certainly very appreciative that you guys have all been very open about your struggles and sort of what you've gone through. So thank you for that. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash missed in history on Twitter at missed in history, missed and at pinterest.com slash missed in history. We're going to have so many pretty things to pin after today's episode. Uh, if you want to get some Mist in History goodies, you can go to Com for shirts, tote bags, uh, cool phone cases, almost anything you can think of. If you would like to research a little bit related to what we're talk- talking about today in sort of a bigger arcing kind of sense, you can go to our website, uh, our parent website, House of Works, type in the word art, and you will get an article on how art works uh, and that will give you some very broad stroke of discussion of what art is so that you can kind of contextualize the work and all the way from Caravaggio down to her and how that sort of all plays out uh, if you would like to visit us at our website that is mistinhistory.com and we have show notes we have uh, all of our archived episodes we have the occasional blog post uh, you should come and visit us there or visit our parent site, howstuffworks.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind.
2: issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.